Welcome to Once Every Two Weeks. In North America, someone is struck by lightning and killed, on average, once every two weeks. We examine these cases and tell the victim's story. We're just like a true crime podcast, where the culprit is always God. Once Every Two Weeks is a look back at the music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school. Join us, Mark and Tom, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenagers. One album at a time. I'm talking at you. Hello? 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 Is it me oh, you're hey. looking for? My headphones for? were off. That's why I couldn't hear you. Ah. Yep. That'll do it. Okay. That helps. That'll that'll do, pig. That'll do. What's on that soundtrack? I don't know, but when I think of soundtracks from the 90s, babe, it's not the first thing that comes to mind. I know. That's why I'm curious. Although, could be a the guy hit. who played the farmer, mm-hmm. uh, he glued himself to a Starbucks. I saw that headline. Yeah. And I was like, wow. The movie Babe really got to him. Good for him. Good for him. It's nice to have conviction. Absolutely. I guess. I think. Maybe. I wouldn't know. <laughs> okay. How are you? I'm feeling a lot more excited to be talking to you than I was a fortnight ago. And why is that? Because we're not talking about Muse again. Uh uh-huh. I don't know if you picked up on that episode, but I'm I'm not the biggest Muse fan, and it didn't resonate with me like tonight's going to. That's okay. We got through that one. That was the only one they put out while we were in high school, so we never have to speak of them again. And there was much rejoicing. Yay! All right. Well, in that case, since you have the enthusiasm for it, do you want to introduce this week's episode? This week's episode, we are discussing the fifth studio release by Social Distortion, the 1996 White Light, White Heat, White Trash. That is correct. This came out our freshman year of high school. It did, shortly after we met. What shortly after we met? Because this came out in September, September 17th, and, you know, that was right after the school year started. I remember listening to this all throughout high school. I'm curious, because I know this is one that, that we both bonded over early. What was your introduction to Social D and to this album? This was probably my intro to Social D at the time. Okay. I remember hearing it on The Buzz, and I got this album for Christmas. Okay. How about you? Since, unlike you, you're the oldest of your siblings, I'm the youngest, so I have a brother who's eight years, nine years, I don't know, something like that. Old enough so that when I started to be interested in punk, he pulled me aside and was like, all right, if you want to be into punk, I'm going to give you some tapes, you go listen to these, you tell me what you like, and I'll give you some more. And he gave me Descendants, Social Distortion, Bad Religion, Suffer, and Minor Threat. That's a solid lineup. Yeah. Before then, I had Green Day's Dookie on a tape, and I listened to that a lot in junior high. And so that was like the thing. He's like, okay, if you really want punk, here's actual punk. And pretty much the only thing in there that didn't click immediately was Minor Threat. Everything else, it's like instantly fell in love with. Yeah. And so I'd been familiar with Social Distortion for a little bit because that was probably seventh, eighth grade that that happened. So it's not like I had a big leg up on you. 
Now, which album did Pete give you? He had them all on tape, so I don't necessarily remember what my first one was, okay. but I know I'd listen to one, and once I'd listened to it enough and wanted more, I'd go then exchange it, because he was very particular of like, I need to know what you're borrowing, when you're borrowing it, and you can only borrow X number of tapes from my collection. And it was like more than five, so. Cool. There was a big change in sound for them from when they started between that and White Light, White Heat, White Trash. Well, certainly. I mean, I think for most punk bands, there is that change in sound as they actually learn to play their instruments. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of a joke, but it's also very true. It is. I mean, you can also see what they were listening to at the time. They got some big rockabilly influence there for a while. Mm -hmm. I think Mike Ness is one who was always perfectly willing to wear his influences on a sleeve. And so there's always a rockabilly sound and especially a rockabilly aesthetic about him. 100%. Who do you think of when you think of Social D influences? Being familiar enough with the band and knowing who their influences are because I've listened to their songs and paid attention. When Mike talks, he's very upfront about The Stones, Johnny Cash, Velvet Underground. He's got some Dylan in there. Yeah. He liked the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing. I see, you know, as we listen to um, their early stuff, and even this, you see their influence they had. You mentioned Green Day. Green Day, definitely. You can hear the influence from uh, Social D on Green Day and Blink. And, I mean, even the entire alternative movement has some homage to pay to, to Social D. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I guess I never realized that you had gotten it for Christmas. My copy of White Light, White Heat, I was able to buy from some chump in high school who was selling his copy. And I got it for like five bucks. Nice. Yep. Can you guess who that chump was? Ryan Gerlich. <laughs> Scott Krieger. Am I right on one of them? It rhymes with om and starts with a T. I sold it to you? Yes. Why did I sell it to you? I don't know. Crap. The same reason that you sold all your CDs to me for five bucks, because you needed five bucks or something. Oh, I needed money. Yeah. Ugh. What's funny is I also bought my local H from you. I do remember selling you that one. The one that I gave you for your birthday. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. I have since bought a second copy. The one that I bought from you had gotten scratched and kind of worn out, so I needed a new one. And recently, (laughs) the last time I was going through my CDs, I still have both of those Local H CDs on the shelf next to each other. But somewhere I've picked up a third disc. (laughs) I've got two cases and three discs, and I don't know where that third disc came from. That's funny, man. I bought this again because I still have it. I pulled it out. Nice. I also still have local, although Christine may have owned local age. I feel like there were a few that I would buy from you and then I'd play them and you'd be like, dang it, I forgot how good this was. I need it again. And then we'd have to go to the CD store and you'd buy it. That sounds about right. It was a very high school Tom thing to do. Impestuousness of high school and uh, ADHD that was not treated well. Right. Not, not that it's treated well now, but it is better. So Social D got together, Bree, Tom, or Mark. True. Back in 78. So mm-hmm. they've been around for a little while. They released their first album, another one that waited a while. They were a rock band for five years before they released their first album. That's true. But prior to the release of their first album, Mommy's Little Monster, they did at least do a big U.S. tour and made a documentary out of it. They did, even before they had their album. Yep. So they didn't have an album. But another state of mind is if you're interested in punk, if you're interested in history, it's an interesting look at where punk was in the culture, where punk wasn't in the culture, and just how uh, weird young Mike Ness was. Yeah, it's interesting. During that tour, or before that tour, they already had some turnover in the band. This is some new guys playing together. But if you look at Social D, they've got a long list of people who were around. Like any band that's been around for 40 years, they've got a lot of turnover. Not Ario Speedwagon. I'm not doing this with you right now, Tom. 
the new guy has been playing with them since the late 70s. Just thought you should know. I know. I know this because they told me when I went to see them. I know this because you've told me, like, every time we've spoken for the last <laughs> year and a half, he doesn't shut up about Ario Speedwagon. I don't even like Ario Speedwagon. Yeah, at all. so why do you keep talking about them? I don't know. You say that every band that's been around for 40 years has a bunch of people, not Ario Speedwagon. Well, they've probably been around for more than 40, so... I've been around for a long time. But that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about White Light, White Heat, White Trash. This album has stood up as, as one of my favorites from the 90s, honestly. It's still just so... I don't know. It's just great. Just the hearing Mike Ness. And we have a very unfair advantage this week for this or this uh, episode because we have an interview with Mike Ness where he goes through and tells what all the songs are about. And he only gets one of them wrong. As we mentioned, a lot of turnover in personnel and socialty over the years. There was even some turnover in the band during the making of this album. White Light, White Heat, White Trash was produced by Michael Beinhorn. And in the early stages of Mike Ness working with Michael Beinhorn, Mike and Mike decided that the current drummer at the time didn't quite have the right sound that they wanted. Hmm? And so he got the boot. And even though in the credits of the album, drum credits go to Chuck Biscuits, who had played for Circle Jerks and Danzig, he didn't. And Black Flag, right? Probably. And so the reason I want to say that is he played drums for Danzig, Henry Rollins, and Mike Ness, three of the most BA frontmen of the time. Yes, but I love Bill, and Bill is the one true drummer of Black Flag, in my opinion. That's fair. Which is funny because he's also the one true drummer for Descendants. <laughs> anyway, session drummer Dean Castronovo, who had at one point been the drummer for Journey, he played drums on the album. <laughs> It's just a pretty far cry. Hey, don't stop believing. John Maurer played bass, and Dennis Denell was guitar. He usually did rhythm guitar, while Mike did lead guitar and vocals. Dennis had been an early addition to Social Distortion. He had been childhood friends with Mike, and Mike recruited him in high school. Even though Dennis didn't know how to play any instruments... He originally came in and did some bass work and eventually, like Mike, learned to play guitar. This was Dennis's last studio album with Social Distortion as he passed away February 29th of 2000 from a brain aneurysm. He was 38, which when he introduces himself in another state of mind, he says that he was 37. So he aged very well. (laughs) Fun fact about Michael Beinhorn, in addition to producing this album, prior to White Light, White Heat, White Trash, he had also produced a few early Chili Peppers albums, including Mother's Milk. He produced The Violent Femmes. He produced Soul Asylum's Grave Dancers Union, Ooh. which is an entirely underrated record from start to finish and totally holds up. 100%. If you disagree, I will fight you. You can't disagree with that. He also produced a small, mildly successful band, Soundgarden with their album Super Unknown. He produced Aerosmith and Ozzy all before his work with Social D. Since working with them on White Light, he has worked with Hole, The Colt, Marilyn Manson, Verve Pipe, Fuel, Black Label Society, and Pete Yorn. So he's had a few hits, kind of knows what he's doing. Yes. <laughs> Excellent contribution as always. Pete Yorn, I like it. We need to add him to the list. So we can tell about your story hanging out with him. I never hung out with him. And his debut album, 
was thought late he had you hold his beer. Was that not 2000, you? 2000, 2001. That was not me, no. Oh, never mind then. I thought that was you. But I saw him open up for Sunday Day Real Estate before his debut album came out. Oh, nice. Dude, I gotta figure out who held his beer. That we can have them on the episode and they can talk about it. Was it your wife? No, it was, it was a guy who was not old enough to have beer, but Pete Gorn handed him a beer and then went on stage to play. Hmm. Although I feel like maybe I did meet him in the lobby after the show. Did you start singing Dear Lover to him? No. No, I did not. I read somewhere Mike Ness said back in the day in the 70s and 80s with punk, you know, if you walk, if you had your studded jacket on, you were looking for trouble. They put on a live album in 99 called Live at the Roxy. And there's bits in there between songs where he talks about things. And one of them that he mentions is like, if you walk down the street with blue hair, you was going to get in a fight with about five angry construction workers, the local college football team, rednecks or cops. <laughs> and that's one of the milder statements that he makes about it. <laughs> One of the few that we could actually say on this family-friendly podcast. Exactly. He also talks about how you can walk into a mall and get certain body parts pierced. Yeah. It was a different um, a different game. Yeah, he's been very vocal. And at first I thought maybe it was kind of just him having a chip on his shoulder about the way things used to be. As I've been reading some interviews with him and whatnot for this, I think it's more of him playing the role of punk rock historian, yeah. just reminding people of how it was. Was this their second or third album with Epic? This was their third with Epic. This concluded their contract. This was their last with Epic. With Epic. Yeah. Yep. Along with Mike having been there from the early stages of to set the scene for this album, he was looking at the state of music. And the current state was coming out of grunge. And he was seeing that there were all these new wannabe punk bands coming up that weren't necessarily punk to him. There was a lot of the pop punk or, or the skate punk or things that didn't sit right with him. Because even from the time that he was very young, he's just been a crotchety old man. <laughs> Essentially, he was just disenchanted with music and didn't feel that the industry was very genuine or that any of the popular music was honest. He felt that it was all too fabricated, either to fit a look or to fit within a specific genre to sell records. And it was very polished and commercial and marketable. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing he said about his tattoos and stuff. He did it to be antisocial, but now people are doing it to be cool. Everything had lost its individualism, right? Yeah, so I see, in a way, they made this record as an exercise, kind of in accepting the things he couldn't change, as well as taking as much control of the things that he could. All of the reviews talk about how this one is louder and faster and harder, whatever, than the Social D albums that had come before it. One of the things that he talks about in this interview that he did with Riot Fest prior to playing that we're going to quote heavily, I want every record to stand apart from the last one. I think that this one can just be a little bit more aggressive and definitely have attitude, but that's just a natural thing for me. I'm chronically irritable and discontent, so that's what I always write about. But in addition to being louder, faster, harder, they took a bit more time on this one. And you can see that it's better produced and the most digestible of their albums to this point. And it's not so much of a, if you can't beat them, join them attempt as it is an attempt to hijack the ship, take back control and course correct. It's like, okay, nobody's making punk the way that punk should be. So I'm going to turn my guitar up and I'm just going to play louder than everybody until they listen. And it worked. Yeah. And to an extent, I think this is also the moment that solidified Mike. He's no longer just this rude boy on the scene, but he becomes an elder punk statesman, as it were, for better or worse. Yeah. 
In a nutshell, there's one description of the album that I came across that says, Featuring a harder sound than its preceding releases, the music on White Light, White Heat, White Trash from Social Distortion offered a shift back to the band's hardcore and punk roots. Critically acclaimed, this release will be welcomed by all fans. And that is from BedBathAndBeyond.com. Wait, what? Yes, because this album was so successful in helping punk become commercially viable, socially acceptable, that you can now buy their vinyl from Bed Bath & Beyond. Wow. I don't think that's where Mike Ness thought he was going to be when he was fighting people in the 80s. Well, he's still doing it, apparently. He got in a fight a couple years ago, the guy in the crowd, who supposedly <laughs> told him that he paid to hear his music, not his politics. <laughs> Nothing against Mike, because I believe he practices what he preaches, and he lives the lifestyle. But I kind of have had this theory that he hires a guy to go with him on tour to be the plant in the audience. <laughs> so, I don't know if you remember in theater how every grading period we're supposed to go to some performance or some something to see, see an art production, and then we had to write a critique of it, and that was part of our grade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was supposed to go with Peter to go see this tour when it came through. And for whatever reason, I wasn't able to go. But Peter went and then he came home and he gave me the play-by-play, -play, which included somebody spitting at Mike and Mike yelling, Hey, I'm not Sid Vicious. Don't pull that at my shows. And the guy spit on him again. So he, you know, threw his guitar to the guitar tech and punched the guy and had him kicked out. And of course, all of this I put into my critique and pretended that I had gone because I didn't go to anything else that grading period. Sorry, Candace, if you're listening. <laughs> Whoops. But I did see him just before the start of senior year when he was doing his solo tour. Back in 99? Yeah, it was 99 at Fitzgerald's. Rest in peace. It was the same thing. At one point in his set, somebody threw a beer on him. He was like, hey, don't throw stuff at me. And then, sure enough, the cup comes floating onto stage. So Mike throws his guitar to his guitar tech, jumps on the ground, punches the dude in the face, has the bouncers throw him out. I've got a good friend, Pedro, who grew up in L.A. He's a couple years older than me, and we also bonded over a fondness of social distortion because he's from SoCal and into punk, so how could he not be a social D fan? And he has seen them a couple times, and every time he's like, the exact same thing always happens. At this point, it very well could be that people have caught on. It's that a rite of passage to be punched by Mike Ness, exactly. right? Exactly. Maybe it's bragging rights. When I was studying up on Social D, I read somebody's encounter. This guy on Reddit said he'd been at a concert and touched Mike Ness's shoe. Mike Ness kicked him, and it was awesome. <laughs> That's about right. Oh, wait, no, I, I, I'm misquoting. He said he touched his shoe, Mike Ness kicked him, then fixed his hair, and it was awesome. <laughs> Mike Ness fixed his own hair or fixed yes. the guy's hair that he kicked? No, no, he fixed his own hair after he kicked him. Okay, because that would have been incredibly nice of him. That'd be really weird to just have Mike Ness kick you, come down, fix your hair, and go back up. I just kicked you in the face. Now are you going to be cool? If so, I'll fix your hair. We're talking the Riot Fest interview, mm -hmm. right? I did find a picture of Mike Ness holding a Riot Fest sucks hat. <laughs> nice. Uh, let's jump into the album. The album starts off with a real banger, Dear Lover. Uh, what does Mike say Dear Lover was about, Mark? Let's let's get a feel for what it's about, and then we'll talk through the, uh, the, the emotions and how it got us there. With regards to the first track, he says, I didn't write that necessarily after heartbreak. I already felt like that. I didn't even need to get my heart broke to feel that way. What I was doing wasn't working. 
It was almost like saying goodbye to that life because it really wasn't bringing me happiness. It's something everyone goes through, and I kind of wanted to paint an accurate picture of that. All right. Dear Lover starts out, it is a thrashing song. It is very fast and upbeat. Heavy, heavy guitar, as we should expect. And Mike Ness just goes right into it with the, the lyrics. His voice is pretty signature. If you're not terribly familiar with Social D, I'd be willing to bet once you hear the opening, him opening up this, the singing in the song, you'd know exactly who they are. Unfortunately, our former sponsor, Music Genius, had no good insight into this song for us. So we gave them the boot. We did. And we are now um, sponsored by Song Meaning, and we will turn to them later in the episode. However... We do have more quotes directly from Mike with regards to the album as a whole. He says, I'm definitely much wiser and more of the person that I want to be, and I'm heading in that direction more. It takes a lot of work, but at that time, I was just so afraid and so alienated, or so alienated from love, and now I have a better grasp on it, and it makes you a pretty secure person. It also makes you open to a lot when you're open to everything, and you're going to receive more. And so I think that... This track and a lot of the songs on the album are kind of akin to a lot of the themes that we talked about on the Toad album of deep self-examination and self-reflection, but from a person with much different yes. perspective of life and history. Yeah. You can tell with this song, too. Mike Ness says he, quote, don't like hardly anybody that was making music in the 90s. Mm -hmm. He said, I don't want to listen to this stuff. I want to listen to the real thing. It was very hard for me to get inspired by contemporary music. 70s punk was, quote, the only music at the time accurately portraying how I felt inside. And he said with this album, the intention was to bring back the soul and emotion of what the first wave of punk in the late 70s was, which he felt was sorely lacking at the time. Mm -hmm. Because punk has become a formula. It's basically cheap trick with louder guitars. A lot of passion has been lost as it's become more marketable. The masses have decided punk rock is safe, but we were doing this music when it was unpopular. And he goes on to criticize. He criticized a lot of the grunge 90s alternative bands. Mm -hmm. He really didn't like Alice in Chains or the Stone Temple Pilots, who he said were basically Led Zeppelin with pierced noses and short hair. The only exception he really made for the grunge bands was he liked Nirvana because he believed them. Well, as we discussed on that episode, Kurt tried to walk that line with the balance of being commercially successful, but being open to his punk roots and being true to those ideas. And, and that's what Social Distortion does with this album and this first song very well. The song just kind of grips you. The lyrics grip you. It's something anybody who's been through heartache of any kind can relate to. But like Mike yeah. Ness said, this wasn't about a single heartbreak, but life in general. All right. I mentioned my buddy Pedro already. Possibly my favorite quote from Pedro is that rockabilly guys are just emo boys who know how to fight. <laughs> and the first time he said that, I stopped. I was like, wait, say that again? Yeah, I mean, lyrics, this couldn't be more emo if it tried. Uh, Dear lover, I can't take the pain no more. I pick my heart up off the floor. I can't believe it's come to this. Give me one last painful kiss. Even like the poppy emo bands, if you can't hear My Chemical Romance singing those lyrics. No, I was thinking Hawthorne Heights. Ooh. I mean, Ohio is for lovers. Ohio is for lovers. And apparently so is Orange County. Not if you're here. Apparently it's o Orange County's for heartbreak. But you can't have heartbreak if you weren't in love. Hmm. That's right. Anyway. Don't try to drag me down. Um, I liked your segue there to our second song. You're welcome. Don't drag me down. About Don't Drag Me Down, Mike said, This song is particularly relevant today. They say we're colorblind now 
but they just find a different way to practice racism in this country, whether it be mass incarceration or figuring out ways that make it hard for minorities to vote. It's still here, and I'm glad that a song like this can still be played right now. You can hear it now for the first time, and it almost seems like it was written now. I wrote it after touring the United States and experiencing racism at punk shows. I got tired of fighting everybody, physically, realizing that that wasn't working that it was going to be more powerful and long-lasting, so I wrote a song about it. Obviously, it's proven true. And I like here that he specifically mentions he's tired of physically fighting everybody. Physically fighting everybody at his concerts. <laughs> but uh, the themes he's hitting on and the, the lyrics throughout it, children are taught to hate, parents just couldn't wait. Ignorance is like a gun in hand, reach out to the promised land. Your history books are full of lies. Media blitz going to dry your eyes. I mean, we're seeing the same stuff like, yeah. unfolding today, right now. In this quote, when he says, it's still here and I'm glad that a song like this can still be played right now, I don't think that he means that he's happy that <laughs> there's still these things going on. He's not loving racism. But I think he does appreciate that people can still discover it for the first time and relate to it and recognize that there are problems. You kind of feel like you're not alone if, in seeing those problems when you mm -hmm. hear music like this. Yep. Not to go on a political rant that's going to lose us listeners, but I live in Oklahoma and we have people whose granddaddies literally were in the KKK and behind, you know, the largest race massacre in America. And we have legislators who want to remove that from the history books, who are convinced everything is critical race theory. And it's just like he said, it's another way for racism to be strong and survive. Yeah, uh, how it becomes this generational condition that's handed down. Yeah, it's messed up. This wasn't one of my favorite songs, but I liked it a lot more after reading the Riot Fest article. Spoiler alert, this has probably always been my favorite off the album. Very interesting. There's not a really good segue to a song called Untitled, so we're just going to have to call a mulligan on this one, I think. Untitled, Mike Ness says, either I couldn't think of anything else to name it, or probably the song was so powerful and meant so much to me that putting a title on it would have made it smaller. That was really a song about when I got clean and sober. The guys were who were those who helped me get clean and sober were these older guys from Pittsburgh. I ended up writing a whole chapter about it in my book, which isn't done yet. One of them basically became my sponsor in AA and became a real father figure to me. He also introduced me to doo-wop and old black music and really helped me connect the dots with Roots music. I was 23 years old, so having an older guy in his 30s teach me to play poker, get me into boxing, cars, or whatever, or just having me over for the holidays. It was a very pure relationship. Unfortunately, in the same period when he passed away, I'd lost about four other friends within a three-year period, so the song was kind of about all of that as well. Yeah. How do you feel about this song, Mark? On Live at the Roxy, there's a point where Mike says to the audience, Hey, do you want to hear your happy song? And everybody cheers, and he's like, Sorry, we don't do no happy songs. <laughs> this makes me think of that. What he's talking about, it's all very serious, very somber. Starts off, he says, I'm heading down a lonely highway, running down a one-way street. So it's all kind of dark and desperate, but it also talks about meeting people who you have shared experience with and how they can build you up and how friends can improve your life. Yeah. So at the same time, while it's not necessarily a happy song, it's a hopeful song. Yeah. It's going back to that idea of you're not alone, right? Yeah. And for me, that's really at the heart of what a lot of what I would consider true punk to be is you had all these kids who felt like outcasts who came together to make this movement that was rebelling against all the things that made them feel alone and jaded and isolated. Yeah. And it becomes this inclusive thing then of like, if you've ever felt that way, regardless of your background, regardless of where you are in life, punk can be one of the most inclusive things there is as far as musical genres and movements. 
because it's not necessarily trying to just stick to a specific sound or a specific look. It's just about finding people who've seen some stuff and getting through it together. I dig. Next up is song number four, I Was Wrong, which was their first single release from this album. It was written by Mike Ness. And Mark, do you want to give us a little insight on what Mike Ness says it was about? Although I feel like the title and the lyric give it away, but... A little bit. But with regards to this track, Mike said, What people related to, I think, was just the vulnerability. That puts people's guards down. I don't know this for sure, but I may have been one of the first rock and rollers to just say, At certain times in my life, I was an asshole. This job comes with a big ego. Hey man, I am who I am. That's just what I do. I'm Mike Ness. Take it or leave it. It's so easy to pull that card, but it's a lot harder to look inward and just go, You know what? You're right. I was wrong. Now, I know that all sounds good, but I just want to go to songmeanings.com okay. and read what Hubert said on July 2nd, 2002. Women are just as stubborn as men on being wrong. That's what the song is about. That's, that's some deep insight. You know, our new sponsor, Song Meanings, has a lot of good deep insight on there. If you have not checked it out, search your favorite song. I don't know if you remember exactly, but correct me if I'm wrong. This is the one to throw it back to high school drama class, Got Cannibalism Band. Yes. It is, in fact, the one that got cannibalism banned. Okay. I was thinking this is what we did, our lip sync to. It is. At some point, we need to go through all the things that we got banned and do a modern compilation of it and send it to Candace. Safety dance, throwing babies, cannibalism. The word sucks, sucked, or any variation of. Yep. But there was also a lot of things that we got banned <laughs> from your mom. From my mom? Yep. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> um, and it was cute that she thought that her band got <laughs> them to stop but this is one that i enjoyed a great deal and as you said we did a lip sync to in a theater club at cypher high school back in the late 90s yeah the assignment was create a scene to lip sync to a song it didn't have to be about the song yeah it didn't the, have to the, match the, the scene and song didn't have to match they didn't have to match originally we had done something to the descendants i like food but then when our drama teacher saw us rehearsing and realized how short that song is she made us pick something that was longer than 45 seconds yep. so and we went with this one just because it was one that the both of us just knew the words to yep and we ate humans. Well, we got into a fight, and you killed yep. me, and... And then I ate your corpse. Right, because the fight was over eating dinner, and True. dinner got ruined in the fight. I still remember that. As you were picking me up and setting me on the table, you almost dropped me. <laughs> I didn't remember that part, but that sounds believable. We'd rehearsed it plenty of times, and you were fine, but when we go to perform, you almost dropped me. Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah, that was banned freshman year. Same year that anything to do with safety dance was banned. I think it was sophomore or junior year that we got Monty Python banned, wasn't it? Probably. I was going to say, though, one of our final projects senior year, we brought back cannibalism just to spite Candace, and it was amazing. I mean, we were graduating anyway, so what difference did it make? Yeah. Uh, the song has nothing to do with cannibalism, though. Nothing nothing um, at all. It's a retrospective, looking back on your life and realizing you made a mistake and acknowledging the hurt you've done to others. That lip sync freshman year is not something I look back on as a mistake. No, we were definitely right. <laughs> definitely. Which goes back to the ego that Mike Ness says you have to have as a performer. You and I still have as performers. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a valid point. And that goes back to something that Glenn Phillips talked about during the Toad episode of as a performer, you have to have an ego to just put yourself out there in front of people like that. Well, not all performers. Okay, who doesn't? Uh, Stephen Jenkins, 
Just following Zach Lund's Twitter on the uh, Jimmy World Third Eye Blind tour made me realize just how awful Stephen Jenkins is. Uh, but, but he wrote some bangers. Yeah, and we'll cover that here at some point in probably the near future. You're darn right we will. I want Motorcycle Drive-By on here. Mm-hmm. And he does have my favorite song, I think, about Crystal Math. At least top five favorite Crystal Math songs. I know you love some Crystal Math songs. Uh, yeah, so this was a good song. I'm still a big fan of it. I think I look at it a little differently, again, as you will, as a middle-aged man looking back at this music. But even as teenagers, I think we realized in ourselves we had self-destructive tendencies. I think one of the appeals of the album is that a lot of these songs have a broad application at just about any age. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I think this album still ranks so highly with me as one I'll just put on. I've listened to it a lot more over the last couple of weeks that we've planned on recording this or started and stopped recording this. A lot of my playlists have songs by Social D and especially from this album on them. So indeed great song um you know but as i look at the world through these eyes i can find a lot of different applications for i was wrong which brings us to our next song through these eyes boo that was a terrible one i have to apologize <laughs> um and this is one of my favorite songs from this album just to be perfectly honest i agree this is one of the more standout and it's a shame that mike doesn't give us more of an insight into it mike may not but cool stuff 25 on songmeetings.com tells us good song good job cool stuff that's about as long of a... As long as Mike's description? You want to read what Mike said? In Mike Ness's own words, that was more of a song to make people think about the world around them. That's all he said. I really like the chorus of this, which says, And though my heart has made me weary on a road less traveled on, through the heart it hurts so dearly and the pain it lingers on. I really like that and the first line of his second verse. Through these eyes I've looked the devil in the face and I've seen God's holy grace. I think there's a good contrast there with the imagery that he's using because yeah. all of the chorus it starts with through these eyes I've seen whatever I've seen love I've seen hate I've seen violence and tears seeing the th- the shape of things to come and the- watch them all fall apart it's all seeing these things but then the chorus takes it to the yeah. heart goes from what he's seeing to how he's internalizing and what he's choosing to feel and how he's letting the things that he is seeing if they get to him if they affect him or not. Yeah, it's good. It really is. Again, pretty much blanket applicability for everybody. Right. But in the end, you know, he doesn't get down on the world again, which brings us to track six, down on the world again. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm laughing at my terrible segues. At least one of us is. The sigh just makes it that much better. I'm going to read what Mike had to say about this one. That one is just about having the worst day. I just felt the need to vocalize it. Looking back, I see what a connection that song has to my childhood and how it was brought up, which ultimately affected my outlook on life. It can be very negative when you grow up in an adverse situation. But what I've learned since then is that that can be a positive thing and that it did happen for a reason. Rather than it just being a bad day, it's about being an angry person. I didn't really realize it, but I learned that as a songwriter or a writer or a filmmaker or a politician or a poet, it's great to be angry because that's what fuels you to write. But also carrying around that kind of anger in your daily life is not healthy. I was fighting the world, but I didn't really have a reason. Mike Ness, angry, angry young man. I was shocked to learn he was an angry young man. Really? No. I feel like this is one of those lyrics that, given the climate we're in, would not be so welcomed in today's day and age. Referencing about being angry, upset, and then likening yourself to a loaded gun. 
One thing that we haven't touched on, but I think what makes Mike an effective songwriter, storyteller, is how simple and straightforward he tells his stories. Yeah. I mean, he dropped out of high school and he wasn't really a good student. We touched on this last time with Muse about how celebrities aren't always the most educated folk. But Mike is always upfront with it. He's never trying to be somebody he isn't. And if you haven't noticed in the quotes that we've given and the way he speaks, it comes through that it's not always good grammar. He keeps it real. He does. And he doesn't have any pretense in what he does or who he is. It's just straightforward. And as he said about feeling alone and angry and fighting the world, I'm looking at the lyrics and just the line that's standing out to me right now is, Love and tolerance have abandoned me, and I feel the gloom hovering over me. I'm resentful, and I'm down on the world again. Oof. And I think that that's still another one that I think can be related to at just about any age. And yet at the end of it, he says, this ain't the way it's supposed to be. There's Dark Cloud following me. There's the recognition that what he's feeling isn't necessarily the right way to feel, but sometimes you still feel the wrong way. You can either sit in this despair and let it drag you down, or you can recognize it's not healthy and try to feel the emotions and let them fuel you onto something better rather than pulling you down to something worse. And his life has a good story arc along with that, right? It does. A lot of ups and downs. One of his downs is something he turns into something quite beautiful in the next song, When the Angels Sing. He says, I was living in New York at the time because we were recording this record. I had just lost my grandmother and my son, my oldest son, Julian, was probably two years old, but I was not together with his mother. My grandmother passed, but a baby is born. And kind of just the struggle between a physical and spiritual world and really just the things that matter in life. It's not the cars, it's not the material things. It's the little things like watching kids play in the yard or being an assistant coach on a little league team. That's what means something. My kids don't care what friggin' band I play in. I'm just dad. It was time for me to wake up and see what I had. This is the most sentimental song on the album. Certainly, and I don't know how fully we covered this about his childhood, that his parents divorced when he was very young, and he left home when he was early teens and was dealing with drug addiction at a young age, and so he had a really rough childhood. But his grandmother was very supportive of him. There are stories about how his grandmother had social distortion t-shirts, and she would wear them when she would go out to run errands to help support the band. Like She would go grocery shopping in a social D t-shirt. That's amazing. That is. I just think of a stereotypical grandmother type little lady pushing the cart down the Nile with the skeleton drinking the martini and smoking a cigarette. And it's a wonderful image. And and that right there, I think, speaks volumes to his grandmother and the support that she gave him. And so a whole lot of things going there, but also trying to find the positive in his son being born. And it's just the punk rock version of the lightning crashes video. (laughs) It's an interesting balance. There's so many religious undertones, especially in this album for Social D. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike Nask has continually said over the years he's not religious, which is interesting. Right. But there's still themes at play, life and death and loss, that are stronger than any one philosophy. Yep. And so just being able to adapt the imagery of the angel singing is something that you associate so strongly and that it doesn't matter if he's religious or not. It, it makes for a good song and that's his job. Yeah. And As a quick side note, while we were talking about the, uh, the skeleton, do you know where that came from? Yes. Oh. It was designed by the wife of the front man of, was it the Meltons? Yeah, for a New Year's Eve invitation. So this song also has some, uh, I don't want to say controversy, but there are people around who believe it was written about Dennis Donnell. For some reason, 
there I found a few places where they where there people were talking about Dennis Danelli to the song, but uh, he lived until 2000, so this song is definitely not about him. Danelli actually played guitar on this song, so that would have been really uh, really really awkward to approach. Like, hey, I wrote the song about you dying in a couple of years. Would you mind just kind of uh, making sure that happens? Yeah. The reason for the mix-up is because on their next studio album, which was sex love and rock and roll yeah there are a handful of songs that mike did write about dennis and one of them is called angel's wings yeah because this one uses the imagery people are idiots yeah i love this song i think it's beautiful i had a different perspective where he's continually like he's got a focus of talking about children in here which he said in his quote too Mm -hmm. which is interesting because his son was only two at the time but now when he's talking about it retrospectively he talked about the things he's done as a dad since then like coaching little league so even he has a different perspective on the song after having a kid i get that this was the second single off the album it was the only other single they only had two but this one did not do well nope which goes back to that baffling thing that is popular radio and what people do and don't respond to and this seems like it'd be something that people would respond to more than i was wrong but I think a lot of that has to do with we went over this in our previous episode on code how much the industry had to do with what was successful and what was not true because i don't really remember hearing it on the radio but i definitely remember hearing i was wrong i was wrong spent 22 weeks on the charts and peaked at number four when the angel sang only spent six weeks on the charts and peaked at 33 but you know when you're in the record industry you just gotta know the rules if you want to be successful that one was better i was expecting that one to be honest but yeah gotta know the rules rules. track eight according to mike that was based on experiences learning in life that there is universal laws if you violate them you pay a price are you willing to pay that price like how you treat people i was just learning about the melody at that point in my life and how important that is and vulnerability A lot of people just aren't in touch with this kind of stuff. Their job and their car and their career define them, and they run on that. Especially if they're in a business that's competitive or something. It's cutthroat, and you don't take time to look at this kind of stuff. Our egos are so powerful, but I feel like the ego is the one thing that humans could do without. So when he references the melody there, the melody is, so you think you've got it figured out. It don't come easy. Maybe just for fools. Some say life is a struggle now. It's a game. Just got to know the rules. Yeah, this song doesn't hit for me. Thematically, musically, lyrically, it's just not my favorite. Yeah, it's kind of a different approach to a lot of the same things that he's already been talking about. But I agree, I don't feel this one as much as some of the other tracks that similar themes this feels very akin to Untitled. Yeah. And that one is such a strong song and does its job so well. What do you think of Crown of Thorns? I think for track nine, it was the ninth track on the album. <laughs> <laughs> this one's also not in the top for me. Mike interviews says it's about repeating the same thing over and over again. Wasn't going to find love where he was looking. He says at some point there's an aspect of self-care that has to come into play. Otherwise, it's never going to change. And so this is attempts to find love or comfort or whatever and making the same mistakes over and over and over again. I will say this one, if you look at the last verse. I was just reading that again. Yep. He's kind of ahead of the self-care game here because this last verse is, are you tired of being alone or have you fallen out of love? Do you care enough about yourself? I have worn your crown of thorns. That idea of equating falling out of love and how that relates to how you care for yourself. There's correlation between those two things, right? Yeah. 
there's the bit in High Fidelity where John Cusack is talking about his top five breakups. And he says something at one point along the lines of, you know, you break up and you lose five pounds as a result of like not eating and not taking care of yourself. And this line makes me think of that. Hmm. When we started talking this album, I did not expect a John Cusack reference. So uh, you may have seen my bad segue coming earlier, but I did not see that coming. (laughs) If we're rating music we like from the 90s, how can there not be the potential at any moment for a high fidelity reference? This is true. This is true. Which I'm actually disappointed that the High Fidelity TV show didn't take off. I thought it was a lot better than I expected it to be. That was another one where one of the co-stars is friends with Charles because Charles knows lots of people. And not only did Chuck have him on his podcast, but he managed to get some Chuck swag on set. And there's a handful of times where the camera's kind of on a side view of the register. And we've got a Charles Ellsworth sticker on the side of the, the counter there in the record store. Hmm. Sadly, it was one where it was just a picture of a wizard designed by our buddy Matt White. It wasn't one that said Charles Ellsworth in big letters, so nobody knows what it is, but it looked cool, so they used it. Nothing comes to mind that could be appropriate, no. Unless you want to talk about your pleasure-seeking. I was going to say, bad segues seem to give you a lot of enjoyment. really do love a good bad segue. It's like how I go about as a pleasure-seeker, is finding bad segues. Which is our next song. Just teed that one up for you. Track 10, Pleasure Seeker, is not my favorite either. It's not bad. This is one of my meh songs, you know, the, probably the most meh on the album that I, I don't have feelings either way about. As Mike says, the song's kind of like the devil and angel type imagery. It's an inner conflict of this just feels so good. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I continue to do it. Again, just trying to make people think. His description just reminds me of Romans 7.15. Now we're going to throw St. Paul into the mix where he talks about, like, I'm doing stuff. I don't know why I'm doing it. I don't want to, but I keep doing the thing that I hate. (laughs) Well, if you didn't expect High Fidelity to be quoted this episode, I wasn't expecting you to turn to the Bible. But When we exhaust all of our music and we get into our 2000s, should I expect Amanda Bynes references as much as John Cusack? I don't know if I have any Amanda Bynes references. I like how you're going to try to play that down now that we're recording. Well, I... I legitimately, no, I mean, if I knew any Amanda Bynes quotes, I'd go for it because that was pre-Amanda Bynes being crazy. And some of her work, especially on whatever whatever Nickelodeon show that she was on was pretty good. She's the man. What I like about you. I don't know. No, not her movies. Pre that. Was she on all that? I didn't have cable. She was, in fact, on all that. Yeah, I thought so. For those of you who have not seen all that, you can watch it on Roku. As a young actress, she was very talented. And so I would have no problem admitting to to knowing Amanda Bond quotes if I actually knew them. She and Lindsay Lohan both had really good careers, young, and then went off the deep end. It's sad. We watched Freaky Friday recently. Okay. And then our next family movie night, we watched the remake of The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan. I didn't really remember how good she was. She was a really good actress. Next up, are you going to watch her Herbie remake? No. I don't think even when I saw it back in the 90s, I don't think I finished it. I don't know why you would have seen it back in the 90s. I've never seen it. Because I lived with my mom and Cassie. They had stuff on TV. Uh You always had the option to go drink in the garage with Rick. I just got to give a quick shout out to Tom's stepdad, Rick. The first time I met him was early freshman year. And he's like, I got one rule. If you open a beer, you've got to finish it. Yep. We both have stepdads named Richard. Something tells me yours is not offering high school kids the, the opportunity to consume alcoholic beverages. If he does, he's at least much more discreet about it. <laughs> um, Pleasure Seeker. Yeah, back to Pleasure Seeker. 
I will say, though, what brought me joy in looking at this song within the context of the rest of these. Please go back and say what brought me pleasure. No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) There's kind of a middle point in the song where the climax is just not any actual lyrics, but just a vocalization of Mike going, oh. And what makes me happy is in the lyrics that I copied and to have as a reference here. There's just that single line. <laughs> That's way better than my lyrics that I'm using. Brought to you by songmeanings.com. From I Hate Punk Rock on June 20th, 2002, said Mike Ness is a really good writer and also very intelligent. As shown in the song, he realizes that you must have some discipline in your life. I think it took him a long time to learn this lesson, though. Tig45 waited until 2013 to give his opinion and thought so highly that he did it twice, or she. Good things can be done with a self-destructive edge. Sex, drugs, alcohol. Some people do it to have fun, and some people just want to get effed up and die. I think that's what this song's about. We're all going to die anyway. May as well go get effed up and die, no matter who it hurts. But, as the first song on the album says, Ain't nothing in the world for free, and you can't really do some things guilt-free. And you end up hating yourself for it even more. That is not what I get out of the song at all. Well, there is a little bit because the lyrics, as they say, guilt rears its ugly face. It you beg for more, just a little bit more. Ugh. Feel the pain. <laughs> I feel it too. Have your hedonistic ways. Got the best of you. Playing the game. Don't feel no shame. I can see why TIG 45 may have drawn that conclusion. I wouldn't say that they're entirely wrong, but... They're not entirely right. Right, but I think a bit more it's Mike going overboard to show how ridiculous that mindset is, rather than trying to say you should embrace it. Exactly. He's not an advocate for flagrant disregard for everybody around you and and pure hedonism. Right. It's kind of like what I attribute the Chuck Palahniuk approach to writing. What do you mean? If you read enough Chuck Palahniuk, you see that whenever he describes something, a lot of the time it's to an extreme. It's always overboard. Oh, absolutely. To drive points home. It's always more than it needs to be. To his credit, that's effective. It really sticks. I have, I think I have four or five of his books, all first edition, all autographed, because my wife is pretty amazing. She got these books changed the front page to say first edition and then scribbled in his name. No, I'm just kidding. She ordered them all. (laughs) The only signed first edition I have is American Gods. You have a signed first edition of Gay Men's American Gods. Yep. Do you have a will? I do not. Could you create one that just says, should anything happen to me, this book goes to Tom Crow? Yeah, I'll just say it on the podcast here so you have proof. Because now that we're in our 40s, we need to think about things like this. Should I die and you're not the cause, then yes, you can have my signed first edition of American Gods. You had to put that writer in there. I did. And I also feel that I should follow it up by saying that Pedro gets my CDs. (laughs) We're 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 way off topic, though. Let's rein it in a little bit. Yep. I don't even know where we are anymore, man. Yeah. Well, you should come down here with the rest of us. Bam. Well played. And that's how you segue like a pro, son. But that was a good segue. I said I like awful segues. And this is the last original Social D song on the album. Yep. According to Mike, it's a level playing field no matter who you are. We're still going to go through pain in life. I think it was kind of a snub at people who think they're above that. It's like, no, we're all in this mess together, bro. No one gets out alive. 
The thing I like so much about this is he talks about all this stuff on how hard things can be, what you have to face. But the ending line, that's the way that it goes. And I know how you feel. He's talking about suffering, heartache, hard work, loss. Everybody has to deal with this. There's the line, no one's immune now to a world of problems. No one's exempt from a world of pain. That's the way that it goes when you're down here with the rest of us. Followed by another Roman 715 first. I try hard to do the right thing, yet I wonder, why do I still do what's wrong? And he goes on and wraps it up with letting you know that you are not alone. He, he understands how you feel. Yeah. There have been times in all of our lives where that's just what we need to hear. We're not alone. There's somebody else. And that someone is Mike Ness. Now, track 12. I was kind of annoyed by a lot of the reviews here because they all list track 12 as the hidden song on the album. It's not hidden. When I think of hidden songs, I think of the hidden song on Dookie where you have to fast forward for 10 minutes after the very last song ends or any number of other albums that did that. This is just track 12. You put it in your CD player, you can skip directly to track 12 and it starts playing right at the beginning of the song. Yep. It's a bonus song, but I don't consider it a hidden song. It's a cover of the Rolling Stones song, Under My Thumb. Yeah. Mike said he just wanted to re-record it. We were playing it so well. We'd evolved as a band so much. I felt like I wanted to revisit it, re-record it, and just throw it in there. Some songs that mean a lot to me, I've been listening to them for so long, and I just one day go, I'm going to start playing this. Me and the band work it out. I want to show everyone how it influenced me so it becomes my own version of that. This is a song that early on the band had done a version of, and... Like he says, he decided to redo it. This is one of my go-to examples whenever I talk to anyone about how to do a cover song right. How you can capture the feel of a song and still make it your own. Just like you said about all of the covers on the Nirvana album, I like this one better. Yeah, I do too, but I'm not a Stones fan either. The Stones, to me, have a handful of decent songs. Or maybe just this and Wild Horses. Paint It Black's not bad. But this version, it's a great example of doing it harder, faster, and with more love. An all-around general, more Mike Nessiness. Yeah. And that wraps up our... I will point out that there is one minor difference in the lyrics between how Social D does it. What's that? When Mick Jagger sings it, he sings, Under my thumbs, the girl who once, things like, screwed me around or jerked me around or something. Mike adds the F word. So top three songs, Mark? Top three songs. Um... Number three is Under My Thumb, When the Angels Sing, and Don't Drag Me Down. Okay. Yours. Number three for me is a tie between... Between five different songs. When the Angels Sings, and Dear Lover. Number two is Through These Eyes, I Was Wrong. <laughs> and number five is Susie's Eyes. <laughs> so it's number one. No, sorry. Number one is Through These Eyes. Okay. Nice. I did mention earlier that I saw Mike solo before senior year. I did have a chance to see Social Distortion later, and I saw them in July of 2013. They played the Hootenanny Festival, which was a festival that used to happen around the 4th of July every year in Orange County. They'd put up two stages next to each other, and while one band was playing, one would set up, and they were able to go through bands pretty efficiently that way, and it was probably one of the more efficient festivals I've been to. When I saw, but in 2013, the headliner was Social Distortion, and then they played with Face to Face, Murder by Death, and Old 97s, as well as a handful of others that I don't remember. Weird. Old 97s don't fit in there to me. Old 97s played it every year. 
I I'd also went a couple years prior. It was supposed to be a double headliner of Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis, and Jerry Lee got sick and wasn't able to make it. But Chuck Berry was amazing. That's awesome. I mean, he was old and out of it and didn't know where he was, but it was the power of rock and roll and pure muscle memory that got him through his set. He still killed it? Yeah, he'd sit there and he'd start a song, and at a point you could see his eyes kind of glaze over, and he would just kind of like start wandering over to the side of the stage, and somebody would kind of turn him around and push him back towards the microphone. But the whole time his hands were going and he didn't miss a note. And so when he played Johnny Be Good, he did the second verse like three times throughout the song. But again, the hands just were fire. And it was just one of those things where it was mixed emotion of kind of sad that he's in that mental state, but still just kind of transcendent to be there watching him do this. It feels wildly exploitative. Like some, somebody's yeah. making him play because he doesn't. he obviously can't make that decision for himself anymore, right? Maybe. I don't know how lucid he was or wasn't otherwise, but I'm still incredibly glad I got to see it because it was just just phenomenal to see him play guitar regardless. Um, Whereas the next time, like face-to-face, I loved face-to-face in high school, but that one was kind of an opener and kind of a downer for me because seeing face-to-face and then seeing Social Distortion... At that point, both of them have kind of gotten old. Yeah. And I think Mike, with who he is and with his attitude, it's still present, but he's written songs that he can slow down and he can make into ballads and he can work them because he's great. Face to Face was still trying to play the punk songs that they wrote when they were in their 20s, and they're still trying to play them like punk songs like they were in their 20s. And these are grown-ass men at this point, and they had gotten old and slow and tired, and that was kind of sad to watch. Equally sad to watching Chuck Berry get lost on stage because it was like, oh, this would have been awesome to see in high school. Really cool to see 30 years ago. It was one of those things like when Zeppelin had their resurgence with John Bonham's son playing drums for a handful of shows. As somebody who loves Zeppelin, would I want to go to this? And ultimately, the answer is no, because I don't want to see old man Jimmy Page and old man Robert Plant. It's like you want to remember them how they were at their prime. Right. Robert Plant, when he was young and beautiful with the hair flowing and the blouse. and I mean, old man Robert Plant is still amazing, but it's not the same. You still have your blouse? I have a couple of my better polyester shirts from my high school thrift store days, but I don't think I have any blouses. I'm not Prince. You did. You had that pirate shirt. You had a very lovely pirate blouse that tied at the top and had a like deep V-ish feel to it. Oh, my Renfair shirt. Yeah, your pirate blouse. I have both the white pirate blouse, but I also have the other black one that was I remember the black one too. similar, yeah. which I stole from the Cypher High School Theater Department. It's <laughs> one of those where I was like, you know what? No one's ever worn it in production in the four years that we've been here. It's leaving with me. I've worn it enough that it's now mine. Yeah. But going back to you were talking Chuck Berry, I wanted to, to give a similar story. We saw Leon Russell okay. in his waning years, and it was really sad. He walked with a cane and had to get help up on the stage. And you're like, oh, man, this guy is just I wanted to see him because, you know, I mean, he's, he's a legend. But when he started when he sat down at the piano and started playing, I swear the guy took 40 years off his life and just I mean, just killed it. Shredding on it, just shredding it. And then when he got off stage, same thing. It was really depressing. It's just muscle memory. Yep. At this point, you've done it your whole life. You've devoted your life to perfecting this instrument. And that just takes over when it comes time to perform. It's not like when I saw Bob Dylan and it was terrible. 
Who did you see Bob Dylan with? He didn't play with anyone because he was playing at the the rodeo. He played the Houston Livestock Show okay. rodeo, and so it was just Bob Dylan. This was like 2002, 2003-ish. Okay. And so it's old man Dylan, and it's not like Dylan's voices ever sounded good. I saw Dylan even after that with the Red-Headed Stranger. I also saw Willie Nelson at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. It was probably 10 years before I saw Dylan. Willie was night and day from Bob Dylan playing. Oh, Willie still has an amazing voice. And just stage presence, and he's just fun to watch, and he's high as all get out. Yeah. And, I mean, he's <laughs> muscle memory. <laughs> just smokes up and lets the hands take over. <laughs> His hands know Trigger, and Trigger knows what to do, and he just has a great voice. But yeah, Dylan Dylan does not, but that was the first time I ever rode Mechanical Bull. And then afterwards, almost got into a fight with this drunk lady in the parking lot who really wanted to fight me. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. You just have one of those punchable faces. That's not the first time somebody has irrationally wanted to fight you. <laughs> Bring it, Tim, you little... Still waiting. Was he the one that wanted to fight you and you didn't even know who he was? Yeah. For some somebody I didn't know came up to me and said, Tim wants, Tim to, wants to fight you. Like, who's Tim? And who's this guy? What's happening? I don't know you. I don't know a Tim. <laughs> and then when I finally had Tim pointed out, I'm like, oh, yeah, bring you it. Barely even, He's a short you little barely son. Even stand up to me. You are two feet tall. Bring it, little man. We never did find out why he wanted to fight you, though, did we? No. So back to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> This one's going to be fun to edit. Um, yeah. Final thoughts. I dig the album. It stands the test of time. Absolutely. I think that's one of the good things about punk rock in general is unless you're making angry anti-Reagan anarcho-punk during the Reagan administration, it's going to hold up. You don't think there have been times where we had the return of the, the Reagan-esque hate? I think anytime we have trickle-down economics that don't work and blatantly racist policies, it's, it's applicable. People love to hate on Reagan, and so that's fine. You're welcome to it. But anytime you write a song that specifically references a current administration or name drops, you know, somebody, there's a shelf life to it. I mean, Unless you copy-paste the name out and replace it with somebody modern. I can't see Against Me still playing their song Condoleezza. <laughs> as catchy and as good of a song as it is. No, I don't. I'm with you. Easily the best song written about Condoleezza Rice. I can't see them still playing it. I still want to make a recipe called Condoleezza Rice. That just sounds good. <laughs> That's going to be a really good casserole. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. It's like the Bright Eye song when the president talks to God. Yeah, yeah. And all of the Bright Eye's anti-Bush references, which at the day, you know, it's what he felt. And it was honest to him. And so I don't fault him for writing those songs. But when the Bright Eye's catalog is remembered, I don't think that's going to hold up as well as anything off of Fevers and Mirrors. Look at look at the way Green Day handled their political messaging, right? It was, people knew what they were singing about, but it, it transcends time. It, it can apply to so many things. Yeah, so Mike on this album is saying things that are much more universally applicable. I think that's why it was so good when it came out. I think that's why 25 years later, however many we are, it still feels like it could be fresh, like it's still relevant, yeah. because it is. Well, if you want to do your homework and be prepared for our next episode, we're looking at the Garbage album called Garbage, the band that is fronted by Shirley Manson. Featuring Butch Vig on drums. It's been some good stuff. I'm excited to talk about Butch Vig. I wonder how much of our conversations we do about him. We've already spoken about him once, and we'll probably talk about him more because he did a lot of good stuff in the 90s. He really did. 
So that's what we got. Uh, we will see you in a fortnight. All right, we're done. Once Every Two Weeks is brought to you by the Geek Lounge Podcast Network and Burrow Baracho Records.